When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. If you don't get Ukraine right, this is a chance to stop Putin before it gets to be a bigger war and China's watching. Our people on this side have been obsessed with Ukraine to the point of ignoring our border. I am not going to put Ukraine, Israel, or anybody else ahead of America. Senator Lindsey Graham, who once was a champion of aid to Ukraine, is now refusing to vote in support of aid for fear of angering Donald Trump. Also tonight, if at first you can't impeach, try, try again. House Republicans are taking another swing at impeaching the Homeland Secretary after their first attempt failed in embarrassing fashion. Plus, in just about two hours, polls are set to close in a New York special election that could give us some clues about how the November presidential election could go. Good evening. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. in for Joy Reid tonight, and we've got a lot to talk about. We begin the readout with Republicans' contortions to keep Donald Trump happy. Now, any minute, the House is expected to vote a second time on the Republicans' evidence-free impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Now, because faithful readers know House Speaker Mike Johnson is not doing anything to serve you, the American people, much less America's allies abroad with much needed security assistance. Speaker Johnson and his Republican caucus are doing the only thing they know how to do. Political theater, really for an audience of one. You guessed it, Donald J. Trump. Just look at where things stand on aid to Israel and Ukraine. The Senate passed a $95 billion national security package in the early hours of this morning, but the path forward in the House is still unclear. Speaker Johnson says he's not going to bring the the bill to the floor because it doesn't have Southern border policy changes, even though just last week he blocked a bipartisan deal to connect Ukraine aid and border security because, well, the former president told him to. 22 Republican senators did vote for the foreign aid package without any border measures in spite of Trump's instructions to kill it. Now, Trump, he's going to now say that the U.S. should stop providing any foreign aid unless it's structured as a loan. That demand seems to be enough for at least one of the 26 Republicans who voted against the aid, that senator being South South Carolina's Lindsey Graham. Now, even though Senator Graham previously bragged on Twitter that he received, quote, immense joy to learn that his commitment to Ukraine had drawn the the ire of Putin's regime, Graham voted against the aid package and he's backing up Trump's foreign aid as a loan proposal. This is what he believes, guys. It's another gift to Vladimir Putin just days after Donald Trump sided with Russia over the treaty-bound NATO allies inviting Putin to invade European countries that don't pay up on their membership. And just today, a national security advisor to Trump 
who is retired General Keith Kellogg, told Reuters that he would propose a tier system for NATO members and push for changes if Trump returns to power. This could result in some member nations actually losing protection against an outside attack. All of this, when you consider it together, it just proves why it is so dangerous that Republicans are falling in line with Donald Trump's America first appeasement of Vladimir Putin. At the White House, President Biden said failing to pass the foreign aid would play directly into Putin's hands. For Republicans in Congress who think they can oppose funding for Ukraine and not be held accountable, history is watching. Failure to support Ukraine at this critical moment will never be forgotten. You got to decide. Are you going to stand up for freedom? Or are you going to side with terror and tyranny? You're going to stand with Ukraine? You're going to stand with Putin? Will we stand with America or with Trump? Okay, so the Senate has done its job. And now it's time for House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffrey, who says it's time for the House to do their job. But one Republican said the quiet part out loud about why Speaker Mike Johnson is blocking the bill. Congressman Andy Biggs told Politico, if it were to get to the floor, it would pass. Let's just be frank about that. So again, instead of doing anything productive and bringing the foreign aid bill to the floor or taking up any serious attempts at border legislation to fix what the Republicans have labeled themselves a crisis, Republicans are rather retreating to performative nonsense just to bend the knee to Donald Trump. Republicans are claiming now that they have the votes to impeach Secretary Mayorkas even after last week's debacle. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Congressman Robert Garcia of California. Congressman Garcia, thank you for being here. We know you have a big night ahead uh, with this sham impeachment vote that we're dealing with. Can you just talk for a moment? Right now, your austere body, the House of Representatives, is teetering on being one of the least effective and productive bodies or congresses or sessions of Congress in the modern era. And I I really want us to take a look at this because the amount of legislation that is being passed is abysmal. With every seat up for reelection this year, how are your members going to sell that in their respective districts? Well, look, I think that the Republicans aren't going to be able to sell anything. Um, This entire Congress has been focused on two things, and it's been essentially impeachment palooza. They want to impeach, of course, the president. And now tonight they're focused on impeaching Secretary Mayorkas. Let's remember that there is zero evidence to do so. With the impeachment vote tonight, which should happen actually here any minute, they're going to call the vote at some point soon. Um, There has been no evidence. There's no reason. We know that the border policy needs to be addressed. We also know that border crossings started going up when Donald Trump was actually the president. They tripled, actually. So there's a lot of work to do, but no interest in actually having solutions. And as it relates to President Biden, they are obsessed with trying to impeach the president with zero evidence. I I really want to ask you very quickly about this sort of paradigm where on one end you can't pass a border bill to address what you've labeled a crisis, what their party has labeled a crisis. But then at the same time, this latest impeachment, as you talked about impeachment palooza, you started with Joe Biden and nothing happened there. You continued with Hunter Biden. Nothing seems to be happening there. And now you're at Homeland Secretary, Homeland uh, Security Secretary Mayorkas. And it doesn't appear that that's going to work either. Let's parallel those two tracks and just talk about the paradigm of what seems to be their priority. 
Well, I mean, first, uh, what's interesting is we don't know what their priorities are. I mean, Speaker Johnson has absolutely zero control of his conference. This entire conference is being directed essentially by the MAGA extreme right. They want impeachments. They want extreme measures to deny abortion access for women across the country. Um, there really is no agenda. We're actually trying to get stuff done in the Congress. We're actually trying to ensure that we take care of working American people. But um, the Republicans don't want any, any of that. They are obsessed with impeaching cabinet officials and the president. And that's what tonight's all about. Congressman Robert Garcia, I hear the bell. I know you've got to go make that vote. Thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you. And I want to bring in now Christina Greer, who is a political scientist and the host of the Blackest Questions podcast, as well as Kurt Bardella, Democratic strategist and contributor to the Los Angeles Times. Thank you both for being here. Uh, Kurt, I want to start with you. I just want to sort of get your thoughts. And again, I'm, I'm going to parallel this track in terms of a timeline. On one hand, there's this conversation about the border, the border, the border. And then there's this very interesting retraction about mm -hmm. where we want to go on the border and what we want to do. But there seems to be a lot of clarity, even though you're being unsuccessful about the impeachment effort when it comes to Secretary Mayorkas. Help me make sense, because as far as I'm concerned, the math is not mathing, the logic is not working, and I'm not sure where we're going. Well, you and the rest of the Republican conference, man, I mean, this is the words logic uh, and even math at this point pretty much have no purpose in the current construct of the Republican Party. Let's get this straight. There's a border crisis. There is an invasion at the border, as we see uh, the, the Republicans talk about over and over and over again. Yet when presented with the opportunity to pass billions of dollars of border security funding, they don't even want to have that for a vote. Can't reconcile that. There's a crisis at the border. So their solution is to remove the Homeland Security Secretary. I'm not entirely sure how that adds up. And oh, by the way, let's just remember that impeachment is supposed to be for what's called high crimes and misdemeanors. Someone somewhere, please point to me what high crime or misdemeanor uh, Secretary Mayorkas has committed. No one's been able to answer that question on the Republican Party. This is just a difference in policy and difference in how to interpret policy, a difference in how to apply policy. If we really want to get into the practice of removing people for having policy disagreements, well, then we could just play this impeachment game all day long because this is this precedent that they are setting, and it just makes absolutely no sense, and it's not going to make one difference about the border anyway. It seems like it's February and Republicans still want to play reindeer games, but we are going to put the political theater on a pause for a moment. And Christina, I want to ask, I want to talk to you about NATO and uh, the former president's very, very dangerous comments about NATO. President Biden had a lot to say earlier today. I want to play a clip from you uh, from what he had to say, his, his remarks earlier and get a reaction. Can you imagine a former president of the United States saying that. The whole world heard it. The worst thing is he means it. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Well, let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. Christina, you're the political scientist here. There's been so much conversation about messaging and where it's going wrong. Do you think that President Biden is going to be able to communicate how urgent an issue this could be in a way that's going to land with the electorate? Right, Charles. The president has to use his surrogates effectively to help really um, detangle what seems to be a pretty complicated issue for a lot of people. 
we have a former president who is doing exactly what George Washington warned us about in his farewell address, uh, you know, in, in 1796, essentially saying we cannot have someone who is a tool for foreign entities. Um, the hyperpartisanship that he warned us about in his farewell address as well. Um, but especially having a former president like Donald Trump, who clearly is acting essentially as an agent on behalf of uh, Vladimir Putin. Where it gets a little more complicated, Charles, and where uh, President Biden really needs to use his surrogates across the country in all 50 states is when people read the headlines, they see $95 billion is going to Ukraine, to Israel, to our, our foreign allies. And there are lots of Americans who understand and believe that we should be uh, in various places in the world, but they're looking at their schools, they're looking at their housing, they're looking at their jobs, they're looking at their roads, uh, and the lack of resources that they may feel. And so when you have the bombastic uh, rhetoric of Donald Trump, which says, forget everyone else, you just need to focus on yourself. This is something he said throughout his entire professional career, even before he became a politician. That becomes a little more appealing to certain people when they feel as though their backs are against the wall. So President Biden really needs to help Americans understand our position as Americans, our position internationally. But also we cannot devolve into the type of politic and rhetoric that Donald Trump is essentially accustomed to. And he terribly drags people down to the basis levels where he has always existed, uh, even when he was just a New York City uh, real estate, uh, dare I say, mogul, uh, charlatan, snake oil salesman. <laughs> and with Judge Ingeron on the clock, that may not be very long for a future as far as Donald Trump is concerned. But, Kurt, we were just talking about the performative nature of what Republicans are doing. And I want to turn our attention specifically to the border and Eagle Pass, where there are more and more voices coming out of Texas, particularly coming out of Eagle Pass, that are saying, look, this is being manipulated as political propaganda. And we're being used to sort of symbolize a crisis that in the moment, in the minute, up to real time, isn't necessarily what people are making it. Have Republicans overplayed their hand or is misinformation so strong that they will not necessarily feel any consequences here? Well, I think that we've seen so far that misinformation is so strong on the right that they kind of have created this bubble that they live in where nothing penetrates that, where facts and truth and common sense have no place in it, and they keep operating merrily along. Um, I think that that you know the bill is coming home to roost on that a bit here. We look at, say, like Texas, they've spent $100 million moving immigrants all over the country. I, I'd have to think that anybody who lives in Texas is sitting at home going, wait a second. That's a lot of money. That's money that can be spent on almost anything else that makes more sense for the people who live in Texas. Why are why is Governor Abbott spending that much money using human beings as political pawns uh, and doing something that really does nothing to address the underlying problems? So I think we can all agree that yes, there are challenges with our immigration system. There have been for the last two and a half decades. We have watched president after president, from George W. Bush to Barack Obama, try to solve this problem. Here we are at a moment in time where there is actually a bipartisan path forward to get something done. And what do Republicans want to do? They don't want to put the vote on the floor. They'd rather do what they're doing right now at this very second, play political games with an impeachment of a Homeland Security Secretary that's never going to pass the Senate and is never going to go mm -hmm. anywhere anyway. Mm -hmm. We are getting word that the House of Representatives is about to begin voting for the second time on the impeachment of the Secretary for Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, despite a lack of any evidence that he committed a high crime or a misdemeanor, which is the standard for an impeachment, in his handling of the southern border. We're going to bring in NBC News congressional correspondent Julie Serkin with more. Julie, what can you tell us? 
Yeah, they just started voting. That vote, the do-over vote, essentially, to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas on those two articles that Republicans have been pushing now for weeks on this. I have to tell you, on the vote just before this, which was a procedural step, they did have the votes uh, to move on to this now step. They are tracking the attendance issue. Steve Scalise, uh, who's one of the top Republicans here in the House, I just saw him a few moments ago, and he told me, quote, this is the kind of day where you are tracking every flight, and that, of course, is because this is a flight and day. It's risky to have this kind of vote, this kind of calculation on a day, especially when folks are dealing with weather issues. But again, as we've been talking about all hour, all day long, that New York 3 election on Long Island, which could change a little bit the balance of power, affected a little bit. That was George Santos's former seat. That election is happening tonight. So if they are going to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, that vote essentially has to happen tonight. So far, it seems like Republicans do have the vote to make it happen because of some absences on both sides of the aisle. But again, if and when the House is successful with this vote, this effort largely dies in the Democratic-controlled Senate, where Leader Schumer uh, was pressed on whether he would take this up. He kept saying, we will see what happens in the House. But certainly that chamber, even some Republicans, not interested in moving forward with what they call a political process. NBC News' Julie Serkin, you're going to stay with us as we continue to watch this vote. And I'm going to bring back my panel, Christina Greer and Kurt Bardella. Uh, Christina, as we are keeping an eye on this vote, I want to ask you your thoughts on going back to the NATO conversation specifically, how we have seen so many different Republican legislators, particularly Republican senators like Lindsey Graham, for example, sort of changed their tune and contort logic just to be in line with Donald Trump. What does that tell you about his grip on the party as we get closer and closer to this presidential election? Well, Charles, since he's essentially uh, positioned himself as the heir apparent, I mean, it's not just a grip on the party. It's a grip on individuals. If you remember closely in 2015, 2016, Lindsey Graham unequivocally said that Donald Trump would destroy his party, he would destroy the nation. He was uh, ill-equipped for the job. He was incompetent. The list goes on and on. And then one day out of nowhere, not only did he say he's supporting Donald Trump, he has been 10 toes in with Donald Trump. Every single step of the way with every ludicrous policy that the former president has come up with. And so we see more and more senators looking for their, you know, their job security, knowing that Donald Trump will go after members of his own party as opposed to putting the country first. And this is, again, what the the framers warned us about. We cannot have branches of the legislative uh, wing of the government following uh, just the whims and desires specifically of the executive branch. It is not how democracy or a democratic republic works. But we've seen time and time again, Republican senators really just abdicate and acquiesce to Donald Trump in ways um, that honestly, in modern history, we have never seen. And not just that we haven't seen it. It's just such a stark turnaround. I want to sort of zero in. We talked about Lindsey Graham, but there are a number of other ones. You have Mark Rubio, you have Tommy Tupperville. Tommy Tupperville, you know, is now, you got to protect yourself and we, we can't protect everyone. And, and, and these are people, Rubio in particular, who is very much so known as a foreign policy buff, who at one point 
basically said that Trump was a con man and he did warn how dangerous it would be if Donald Trump was entrusted with the office of commander in chief. Now basically saying I'm defending Donald Trump and his comments around how we should deal with our NATO allies. Kurt, how dangerous is this when you think about this is a man who is doggedly in pursuit of the White House again and intends to stack it with his loyalists? Yeah, I mean, this is why right now the conversation all around the globe in capitals uh, that are allies of this country are very, very concerned about what a Donald Trump presidency, uh, a sequel, if you will, would look like and what it would mean for them, particularly at a time where we're seeing so much conflict, whether it's in the Middle East or obviously with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Uh, you know, I've not that long ago did an informal briefing with a number of ambassadors to uh, European Union states. And then the one question they had was, could this really happen? Is it conceivable that Donald Trump could get elected president? It was beyond their comprehension, Charles, that this country could put someone in power again, who at one point in time, as they put it, tried to overthrow the government. It's like, how does that even happen? It, it, it's, it's downright shocking. And that's the conversation happening right now when world capitals, as they watch the United States of America, uh, you know, go down this path where it is possible, maybe even plausible, that someone like Donald Trump could return to power. And as he makes those type of comments, uh, irresponsible comments, it really sends a chill uh, through the global community because they now know, as we all do, it's not just rhetoric with Donald Trump. Like these are things that could actually come to pass. We are continuing to watch this vote. I believe that it is actually over. We're going to listen into the speaker now. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Pursuant to Section 2A of House Resolution 996, House Resolution 995 is hereby adopted. So, Christina, your reaction now that we have watched this vote actually take place, uh, is this a win for Republicans? How do they how do they spin this? What is the what's the headline if you're sort of trying to lead the messaging for them? Well, for the Republicans right now, I mean, they're obstructionists and that is their only goal to make sure that Joe Biden can can 
just not really move forward with any particular agenda. They want to control the agenda to essentially tell their primary voters, especially uh, whatever Democrats want, we've just said no, even if it's something that they've previously agreed on. So since the speaker has, you know, had some colossal failures uh, in his very short tenure, he's going to market this as any minor win uh, is just, you know, I've got my my caucus under control. We are a unified group. We know that there are several factions within the Republican Party. But the Republican Party thus far has not put forward any new ideas in the legislative branch. Their only goal, as Curtis mentioned before, is to try and impeach folks. We've asked them several times, well, you want to impeach all these individuals in the Democratic Party for what? Uh, what crimes? What misdemeanors? And it's, it doesn't matter. They just know that our voters want blood. They want red meat, and we're going to give it to them. And so even if it does end up with a little egg on their faces, they'll still keep trying because they want to make sure that Joe Biden is seen as ineffective uh, when they go to their voters uh, in November. We're now going to bring back NBC News congressional correspondent Julie Serkin, who's in Washington with more. Julie, talk to me. What can you tell me? Well, this vote just closed, as you see on your screen. The House voted 214 to 213 along party lines to impeach uh, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Three Republicans voted against doing so, the same that we saw in that initial failed vote last week. That includes Tom McClintock of California, Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who has since announced that he will be resigning, not seeking another term in Congress, and also Ken Buck of Colorado, who is also uh, retiring at the end of his term. Nonetheless, this this now seals the deal, the first time in 150 years that a cabinet secretary has been impeached by the House. This will now go over to the Senate, whereas we were just talking about, Charles, that is very unlikely that Senate Democrats, of course, who control that Senate, uh, act on this, that they uh, hold uh, Mayorkas accountable for what they say is a political exercise. Nonetheless, they are required to take this up, hold some sort of trial, certainly with cabinet secretaries as opposed to presidents, for example, as we've seen with former President Trump, the process is a little bit different. Majority Leader Schumer gets to dictate that somewhat, but certainly this is seen as a partisan and political process by Democrats, by the Homeland Security Department itself, which just released a statement to that effect. Uh, and certainly the Senate will have to take this up once they're back from recess, which is not going to be this week. It's not going to be next week. It's not going to be dealt with likely until the end of February, if not March. Julie, uh have you heard throughout today, as you know, there is a special election going on in New York. Uh, it's very for the for the replacement of George Santos' seat, which only brings to bear how important these thin margins in the House of Representatives are. Has that at all been a con conversation among any of the members you've talked to about what that would do to even the scales in a situation like this? Certainly. It's not happening in a vacuum. The reason you're seeing this vote take place tonight of all nights is because you also have that special election happening on Long Island in New York 3 to replace uh, George Santos, who, of course, was kicked out of Congress at the end of last year. And certainly Republicans saw tonight as maybe their final shot to impeach Alejandro Mayorkas, somebody who they've said has mishandled the crisis at the border, who has misrepresented the facts at the border to the American people. And so certainly tonight was their last chance to do it because they could very well see a Democrat flip that seat. Uh, certainly that election has not been decided yet, but that was definitely a political calculation they had. And they, of course, needed uh, Steve Scalise, who is standing a few feet away from me here uh, to my right, to come back from his cancer treatment to cast that vote, because we saw what happened last week when they didn't have enough votes to proceed.
Secretary Mayorkas has just released the following statement, quote, House Republicans will be remembered by history for trampling on the Constitution for political gain rather than working to solve the serious challenges at our border. While Secretary Mayorkas was helping a group of Republican and Democratic senators develop bipartisan solutions to strengthen border security and get needed resources for reinforcement, House Republicans have wasted months with this baseless, unconstitutional impeachment. Uh, Christina, your reaction to what we've just seen on the House floor and, of course, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas' statement. I mean, Charles, you just said it. Every moment we spend on useless impeachment shenanigans and political theater is time spent away from actually providing goods and services for American people. I mean, this is the whole Republican agenda. They refuse to work on legislation, policy, and moving this country forward. They are really obsessed with the theatrics of it all. But even when it goes to the Senate, and we know Chuck Schumer runs a tight ship, and we know that the vast majority of, of Democrats will you know, do their due diligence as uh, you know, they are sworn to do, but it's still a waste of time. And so any time that they're spending going through and making sure that you know they dot their I's and cross their T's the way they should, it's time that they're not making legislation. It's time that they're not researching. It's time that they're not moving this country forward for the myriad of issues that are in front of us, domestic and international. And so, you know, I think Toni Morrison said, you know, racism is, is I'm paraphrasing, essentially a time suck, right? It's meant to sort of waste our time and take time away from us. The same way Republicans, they want to take time away from effectiveness of Democrats. And they've, they've been relatively successful ever since Donald Trump got his hands on the reins of the presidency. I want to go back to NBC correspondent. That the president uh, needs to fix this problem. He refuses to. He wants open borders. Most Americans don't. He's come pretty far in Republicans' directions with this bipartisan border deal. You have Republicans even in the Senate who are saying they wish the House was spending their time actually passing border security legislation and pursuing... Well, if they want to read a border security bill, they can read H.R. 2, a bill that we passed over to the Senate more than six months ago, which would actually secure the border. We worked with Border Patrol agents. We've been down to the border and said, what are the problems and what are the things that are necessary to reverse this trend of an open border? And they said... And remain and uh, catch and release, restore the remain in Mexico protocols, all of the things that you would need to do to get back to a functioning legal system of immigration. And the Senate discarded all of that. That bill's, by the way, still sitting over in the Senate. That bill would solve the problem. So we're focused on solving the problem, not just getting a bunch of people in a room and everybody come to an agreement on something that makes matters worse. The American people want to solve the crisis that we have at our southern border that is now permeated to every community in America. You talk about the border. Border agents, Border Patrol Council endorsed that bipartisan bill. Now you have a situation where the former president is saying this should be an election issue. He doesn't want legislation uh, addressed when it comes to the border issue. So how do you square that? Where do we well, we want that? we want HR two, which is a bill that we sent over to Senate. And by the way, we spent months putting that bill together, and it was a large coalition of members who came together and recognized we've got a crisis. We want to solve it. How do we best deal with that? And that the result of that was HR two, and we ultimately passed it over over to the Senate, and the Senate's discarded that bill because they don't want to address the problem. The president doesn't want to address that problem. It's a non-starter amid Democrats for several reasons. Well, it's a non-starter amongst people who don't want to solve the problem and who want an open border. Most Americans, I can tell you, want to secure our border. They recognize the threat it poses, and they don't want an open border with millions of people that have come into every community in America 
uh, drug dealers, the cartels that are now controlling our southern border, bringing deadly drugs, killing 150 young people every single day in America. Uh, you got Democrat mayors begging President Biden to fix this problem, and he refuses to do that. So we stand ready to work with him on solving the problem, uh, not just coming together and passing a bill to feel good that does nothing or makes it worse, but to solve the problem. HR 2 is a reflection of that, and the president ought to look at that bill and say, okay, there's some areas where we can come together and work to solve this problem. Will aid be sent to Ukraine and Israel without border security provisions? No, we've already sent a bill over to the Senate uh, to address Israel's uh, aid need, fight, uh, needs to to go and eviscerate Hamas. That bill's over in the Senate. Uh, in That's terms of Ukraine, attached, yeah, in terms, and, and if, again, if the Senate can take that up and deal with it however they want. Uh, but ultimately, that bill's over there. Ukraine, the speaker's been very clear to the president. If you want more Ukraine funding, you've got to work with us on securing America's border. And the president won't even meet with the Speaker of the House. He won't meet with him. Look, just just in the last few weeks, the, the speaker's been calling on the president to sit down and talk. You know, can't the two of them just get in a room and see if there's some common ground? President Biden refuses to even meet with the speaker. That shows he's that shows he's not serious about this issue. Speaker Johnson wants to meet with the president without the other leaders. Yeah. Have that big meeting in yeah, and ultimately, if the two of them come to an agreement, that can become law. Everybody knows that. And yet the president refuses to even meet. So the president can't say he's serious about Ukraine or the border when he refuses to meet with the speaker to see if they can come to an agreement on this issue. So you believe that despite what the former president is saying about wanting to keep this as an election issue, Republicans can pass some kind of border security measure? Well, we stand ready. In fact, Republicans in the House have already passed a border security bill. The Senate doesn't want to address it and the president doesn't want to address it. And it's going to be an election year issue because the American people are sick and tired of having an open border. And if you've got this president refusing to address the border crisis that exists, that he created, by the way, and he could solve on his own. And everybody knows that the law makes it very clear. The president has the ability to solve this problem on his own, but Biden doesn't want to do that. So if he doesn't, we've passed a bill that'll fix it. Uh, the Senate won't take it up. The president won't even sit down with the speaker to talk about it. And the American people are sickened by this crisis getting worse and worse. You saw in New York, uh, people here illegally beating up cops and walking scot-free. Uh, that makes our crime crisis worse. It's overwhelming school systems. Uh, you've got so many other problems that are happening in every community in America because President Biden wants an open border and won't work with us to solve this problem. The president did say You've just been listening to NBC News correspondent Julie Serkin on Capitol Hill talking with House Representative Steve Scalise after the impeachment of the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, succeeded. I am talking with Christina Greer as well as Kurt Bardella. After you heard that interview, uh, Kurt, with Representative Scalise, what are your thoughts? Just tell me your reaction immediately, not only to the vote, but to the sort of narrative that's continuing to be pushed. What a gaslighting liar. That's what Steve Scalise is. He is full of it. This idea that, well, if you don't do what we say, then you want open borders. That's a false choice. That's utter nonsense. The idea that, oh, well, we want to compromise with the president. If only the speaker would sit down and talk to the president, we could get something done. No, you wouldn't. You would come to an agreement in the room, and then Donald Trump would, would put something out saying, don't make any agreement. And then all of a sudden, the agreement would fall apart. How many times have we seen that story play out over and over and over again? The idea that Steve Scalise or any Republican is interested in getting something done, he sits there and says, well, we're tired of passing things that just look good, but don't actually do anything. Don't, solve, don't change the problem. What did you guys just do right now? You just pass an impeachment that's never going to see the light of day in the Senate. It's never going to actually 
get passed. He's not going to get convicted. He's not going to be removed from office. So don't give me that. Steve Scalise sits there and talks about the American people are tired of this, that, and the other thing. Well, the American people also voted overwhelmingly for Joe Biden. And Joe Biden appointed the Homeland Security Secretary, and you're undermining the will of the people. You're undermining democracy with these nonsense procedures that you're putting in place right now. So don't sit there and tell me what the American people want. Uh, And oh, by the way, I thought Donald Trump was supposed to fix the border in the first place. Wasn't Mexico supposed to pay for a border wall that was going to solve all of our problems? Whatever happened to that promise? Worth a check for Mexico. I mean, the amount of lying and gaslighting we just saw from Steve Scalise is amazing. You know, I've always wondered why that build the wall talking point suddenly disappears in the minds of Republican voters and why that wasn't something that Donald Trump was ever held accountable to. But to the point of consistency, Christina, is there any value whatsoever in the lockstep nature in which Republicans are moving, even if it doesn't reconcile with logic or reason, but continues to sort of push a narrative? Do they win the the messaging conversation in the court of public opinion? Or is there a bigger game that we're missing? Or is it just foolishness? Well, we're living in two different realities, Charles. And so, you know, Democrats in Washington are trying to, you know, as Kurt said, come to the table with good faith efforts. What Republicans have, because they haven't done the work to actually push through policy and and look forward to uh, a vision for the country, then they're just leading by fear. And that's what Donald Trump has always been good at. And that's the messaging that he's been relatively productive of. You know, just as Steve Steve Scalise just said, you know, they're coming in every single city and country, uh, you know, county in our in our country. And, you know, everyone should be afraid. You know, let's be clear. The vast majority of Americans are children of immigrants. So we we don't have an immigrant crisis. This is what the country always has been. That's that's the ethos. Um, We know that Donald Trump never looked at a map. So when he wants to build a wall against the Rio Grande, it's not going to work. Uh, And so Republicans just let him uh, just have failures and they never hold him to task. Uh, The fear that the Republican Party has toward the former president is something that is incredibly dangerous because essentially we saw Donald Trump have a dry run for four years and not really know what he was doing. And now he's had time to really perfect the graft or the grift, it's called, right, to perfect the smash and grab, to really help Republicans understand that they, too, can get on it. And I think that's what we're seeing. Christina Greer and Kurt Mardella for helping us get started on this very busy Tuesday night. President Biden just released a statement which reads in part, history will not look kindly on House Republicans for their blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that has targeted an honorable public service in order to play petty political games. Homeland Secretary Security, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas, a Cuban immigrant, who came to the United States with his family as political refugees, has spent more than two decades serving America with integrity in a decorated career in law enforcement and public service. From his time in the Justice Department as a U.S. attorney to his service as deputy secretary and now secretary of Homeland Security, he has upheld the rule of law faithfully and has demonstrated a deep commitment to the values that make our nation great. We'll be right back. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. 
Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Welcome back to The Readout. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. in tonight for joy on a very busy evening. All right, my Queens and Nassau County friends, you have got about a little more than an hour to get out there in the cold and the snow and the elements and vote for the candidate that is going to replace the disgraced, expelled serial liar, Republican Congressman George Santos. The choice is between Democrat Tom Susie, the three-time former representative from the district who left office in 2022 to challenge Kathy Hochul for the gubernatorial nomination and Republican state legislator Mazi Philip, an Israeli Jew who immigrated twice, once from Israel to Ethiopia because she was fleeing religious persecution, and then a second time from Israel to the United States. She says she voted for Donald Trump in 2020. A Newsday Siena College poll taken in early February shows a narrow edge for Susie. It, just inside the survey's margin of error, this is pretty much razor thin as it goes. Abortion, democracy, and immigration are top of mind for voters who have gone out in the elements and braved the snowy conditions. And here's what they've told our NBC News colleagues. I think if you're not looking at the TV and the news and what's happening, um, you're, you're blinded. We need to uh, be heard. Uh, we need to have uh, the backing of keeping democracy uh, alive. The southern border is uh, critical. Uh, I think that needs to be addressed, and uh, she stands for that, and uh, uh, I cast my vote for her today. So you cast your vote for Mozzie Phillips? Yes. Early voting has been underway since February 3rd. And joining me now from Swazi Campaign Headquarters is Sahil Kapoor, NBC News National Se uh, Senior National Political Reporter, and Rachel Bittekoffer, political strategist, host of The Cycle on Substack, and author of the new book, Hit Him Where It Hurts, How to Save Democracy by Beating Republicans at Their Own Game. Now, Sahil, you have been out all day talking to voters, seeing what's going on. First and foremost, I want to just talk about the weather. How have the elements impacted voter turnout? Good evening, Charles. There are just under 80 minutes to go before polls close in this crucial bellwether New York district. There has been a snowstorm since very early this morning that has uh, made it very difficult to drive. I myself had trouble getting my car out of the snow, and I, I encountered some cars abandoned uh, by the side of the road on the way to the polling place uh, where we spent most of the day today. So the snowstorm was serious. Pol uh, the voter turnout appeared slow in the morning, but it did pick up. Uh, the snow stopped falling uh, around mid-afternoon and in the polling place that I was at, as well as uh, evidence that we've gathered from around this district, 
turn out did pick up. So it remains to be seen. I mean, I, I'm at uh, the Tom Swazi election night party. You know, his campaign feels good about this right now. They do say the final few hours are going to be crucial because that's when a lot of voters who uh, didn't show up earlier are, are going to try to do this. Republicans have been a little bit more nervous than Democrats as a result of the storm, Charles, because their voters are predominantly election day voters. Democrats had some early vote bank because they have a higher proportion of their voters who vote early. But regardless, it's all to play for. This district has tracked the national mood, voted for Joe Biden by eight points in 2020, voted for George Santos by eight points in 2022. Who's going to win this time? It's going to give us real clues as to who might win the House of Representatives this fall, as well as uh, potentially the outcome of the presidential race, the rematch between Trump and Biden. Rachel, as Sahil just sort of framed for us, the notion of election day voters tends to go to Republicans because they show up on election day more than Democrats typically. But when you're talking about uh, mail-in votes, absentee votes, that tends to, to, to skew heavily Democratic. Um, how do you think that dynamic is going to make a difference here, particularly if the voter turnout is impacted by the weather that we've had in New York all day? I mean, that's why early vote, vote by mail, absentee balloted, was, which was really a system Republicans invented down in Florida and helped them create their political dynasty down there, is because you don't want to rely on election day. Something could happen. There could be a snowstorm. It could be raining heavily. So it is right that the Republicans are nervous because their strategy and their electorate is 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 heavily uh, same day voting. But you know that's gotten much worse. It didn't. It didn't used to be such a clear partisan lean. And, and when Donald Trump turned against the mail-in voting to set up the red mirage so he could set up his coup plot, he really turned Republican voters off of the voting in advance. And that's why we see places like Florida and Arizona, the Republican parties there are trying very hard to cure that uh, problem. And I mean, I think even Carrie Lake tweets about how voting by mail is important. So it, it really is a big issue for them. And uh, I heard turnout has picked up, but unless it's a good turnout, it probably doesn't vote well for the Republicans. That is a very good point. And I think that another thing that uh, that is really fascinating to me about this race, I talked about it the last time I was in this chair, was the new congressional maps that have been ordered by courts following this election. No one knows what they're actually going to look like for this district, but they could impact the winner's control of the House Rachel, how, how are you thinking that's going to play out? What have you, what have you heard? And, and what, how do you think that that dynamic plays into what we're looking at around these results? Yeah, no, I mean, there's some good news in the legal front. If you, ex, you know, kind of just ignore Democratic emergency and look at like redistricting, for example, the courts are starting to turn against partisan gerrymandering. And what we're seeing are mandates across the country in places like Ohio, Wisconsin, New York, where you, um, you know, you have to redraw these districts. So Democrats were put in a very bad position in 2022 because it was the first year after the new census. Republicans were going to gain seats in their deep southern, um, you know, strongholds because of population shifts. And then you had redistricting on top of that, you know, but this time I think it's possible Democrats are going to be in position to take back the House majority just on redistricting because it is such a slim majority and it has grown slimmer since 2022. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be the Senate map that's going to be a real lift. And we're going to get a, cue to, a clue tonight because 
you know, the, the, ever since Roe got repealed, we've seen about an eight point advantage or overperformance advantage for Democrats in all kinds of elections, competitive and even long shots in which there was no spending on it, right? And so if we see that Roe effect tonight, if we see a good win for the Democrats, I think that's going to be pretty uh, good sign that they've still got this mojo going they've had since Dobbs was repealed. Sahil, really quickly, I want to get one question into you. Um, there is about an 18 percent uh, Asian American population within this electorate for this race. And we saw Grace Ming, who's a Democrat, the first and only Asian American woman to represent New York in Congress, actually stumping with Swazi. Do you have a sense as to whether there was any sort of yield for Swazi around the election because of that stumping with that with that particular demographic? Yeah, this could be a sleeper issue in this uh, in this race, in this election, Charles. The Asian-American vote is somewhere around one-fifth of this district, depending on who you talk to. It could be a little bit more, a little bit uh, less, depending on the estimate. And Congresswoman Grace Meng uh, represents a, one district over in Queens. It's a much bluer district with a larger Asian-American population. She has been pounding the pavement here for Tom Swazi, trying to get him elected. Uh, this is a, a powerful demographic force that is showing up in swing districts, not only here, but also in places like California, showing up in swing states that'll be crucial to the Senate, places like Arizona and Nevada. And this is a predominantly Democratic-leaning cohort. It is also fluid. It doesn't have quite the long and deep history of voting for one party that, for instance, African-Americans or even uh, Latinos do. Uh, so they are, uh, they are persuadable. And clearly, Tom Swazi in particular is working to persuade them. Sahil Kapoor and Rachel Biddecoffer, thank you both. And up next... Trump's efforts to delay his trials until after the election are going swimmingly so far, with the Supreme Court now indicating that it will take its time reviewing Trump's dubious claim of absolute immunity. More on the readout when we return. Welcome back to the readout. The game is on and the ball is in special counsel Jack Smith's court in terms of Trump's ongoing effort to delay his federal election interference case over a bogus claim of presidential immunity. This morning, the Supreme Court responded to Trump's request to put on hold a uh, the, the last week, the D.C. Circuit Court of, Appeal of Appeals, their ruling that rejected that immunity claim. He wants to stop it. He wants to, he wants to stop everything in order to hear more about why his claim was rejected. Chief Justice John Roberts is giving the special counsel one week to respond to Trump's request, even though it's unlikely that Smith's team is actually going to take that long. But the bigger question here, the one that everybody's wondering is, what exactly is the Supreme Court going to do next? Joining me now to discuss all of this is former federal prosecutor, my friend and super lawyer, Glenn Kirshner, MSNBC legal analyst and host of the Justice Matters podcast. Sir, I have not been able to take off my glasses the entire night. We've had a big one in terms of news, but now I get to talk to a lawyer and finally do that. First and foremost, what are the chances that Jack Smith responds and the Supreme Court says, we're not going to deal with this because I'm not convinced that they're actually going to take the case and review it at all. But you may think different. I agree with you, Charles. I think there's going to be some really powerful foreshadowing by what the Supreme Court does 
on the stay issue. Think about it. I agree with you. Jack Smith may not take the full seven days, even though seven days is a pretty short fuse deadline. We may see something in two or three days because Jack Smith understands, as do we all, that we're burning democracy daylight. There's a real urgency to get this case to trial. So if the Supreme Court refuses to stay the case, they return it to Judge Chutkin, telling her, put it back on the trial track. I think that will be powerful foreshadowing that they will not be either. They will either not take it up at all and just let the trial proceed. Or if they do take it up, maybe it's because they want to be the big dogs on the block. And even though they agree with the resolution by the D.C. uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, they want to write the words for posterity and put their own spin on why a president should not be permitted to commit crimes against the American people while in office and, you know, remain completely unaccountable for those crimes. So I think it's not the whole ball game, Charles, to stay, but boy, it's a good seven or eight innings of the ball game. You know, I hadn't considered that, the idea that they might take it just to put the nail in the coffin and definitively, like you said, for posterity, make it absolutely and abundantly clear that this absolute immunity thing that he's argued does not, it's not a thing. Um, and that's an interesting point. I still, my money is on that, the fact that they're not going to take the case at all. But let's shift gears. Uh, we're going to go down to Fulton County in Georgia. There's been a lot of conversation as we have watched this controversy develop about the Fulton County's DA's office, particularly uh, Fulton County's DA, Fannie Willis, and an alleged inappropriate relationship that she had with one of her special assistants. Um, we are looking at a hearing on Thursday where the judge has already stated that or leaned or, or suggested that there may be sufficient evidence uh, to support a disqualification of the, D, of the DA here. Uh, if you are... Who, who has more cause to be concerned? Is it Trump's team as they may smell an out or finding Willis's team as they may smell trouble? Yeah, there's a little bit for everybody to dislike about the, the way this is playing out. But here's the thing, Charles. Let's get an evidentiary hearing rather than having this issue bouncing around in the court of public opinion where there are no rules of procedure. There are no rules of evidence. And what Judge McAfee said is, listen, there's a possibility that this relationship and any financial entanglements, you know, might result in a disqualification. But we won't know anything until we have an evidentiary hearing. What I've seen on the papers that have been filed thus far, it's hard to see how any of this inures to the detriment of any of the defendants. If anything, it looks like it might be a matter for bar counsel to take up if there was some ethical misstep. But you listen, the, the, the best way to resolve this is by, you know, putting it in the full light of day in an evidentiary hearing controlled mm-hmm. by Judge McAfee, who seems to be up to the task. He's been doing a pretty good job presiding over these cases. And then we're going to have to let the chips fall. Glenn, last question. Donald Trump between now and February 24th, which is the Republican primary in South Carolina, is going to be all over the map with court appearances and everything else. What's the one date that you're watching for? He's got appearances in New York. There's the Section 4 stuff that's going on in Florida. And then obviously the other things that are going across the map. What are you watching for in particular? Charles, I'm looking for two days from right now, Thursday, because that's when he's going to be back in court in New York in his falsifying business records case, which is really an election interference case interfering with the 2016 election. And I think his attorneys are going to push hard to have Judge Mershon vacate or postpone his March 25th trial, because if the judge holds that trial date, 
He's going to be in trial starting March 25th, and he's going to be in trial every day for weeks and weeks and weeks. That's going to really cramp his campaigning style. Grand and glorious as always, Glenn Kirshner hits it right on the money. Thank you so much for being with us. And that's going to do it for tonight's readout. I'm Charles Coleman Jr. Joy will be back here tomorrow night. Here on MSNBC, we are staying on top of several fast-moving stories. Today's news requires more facts. A new report finds the climate crisis is getting much worse. More context. We are seeing record numbers of people crossing into the United States just in the southern border. And more ground covered. The mission will continue to carry out regime change in the Gaza Strip. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.